An Oakland private school was facing financial troubles in 2019. It threatened to close the school. At the last moment, an alum came just in time and donated several pieces that he came uh, to inherit, Chinese art uh, that was estimated at around $2.8 million by the artist uh, Lee Karen or Kirin. I don't know how to pronounce his name correctly. This is one example of one of those pieces that was donated. School officials were obviously shocked and overjoyed at this generous donation, the increased possibilities for the school. The paintings arrived, but due to IRS rules, they were unable to sell it immediately. And so to help their school and the financial troubles they found themselves in, they borrowed against the asset they just received to help their program, to help their uh, hiring of additional staffing. As they were preparing to sell the piece, uh, they found that they brought it to the, the Bonham's auction house in San Francisco. They were having it appraised and evaluated, and experts at the Bonham's auction house discovered in their evaluation that this donated piece was in fact fake. Copies, reproductions of the original. The donor, uh, an alum who lived in New York, didn't know the authenticity of the pieces. He was equally as shocked. But now that the school has now not only originally in financial trouble, now borrowed against this fake piece that was essentially worthless, worthless found themselves in an even more dire situation. When it comes to art, the authenticity of the piece is crucial to establishing its value. Yet there are so many stories around fake pieces. I just started Googling uh, fake art pieces and the Getty Museum, this very famous museum in Southern California, is victim to many fake pieces that have cost them millions of dollars. They've spent millions of dollars buying things that they believe to be authentic and later, out, uh, later on found out to be fake. The Bible teaches us that there are a lot of fake Jesuses out there claiming to be the real Jesus. The Bible describes to us, not in the, only in the new, but also in the old, that there will be fake good news. There'll be distrusted and inauthentic spirits. There will be many dynamic speakers throughout history persuasive authors, growing institutions that proclaim they know Jesus, proclaim the true gospel, are leading, being led by the Holy Spirit. In fact, what they're proclaiming, what they anchor themselves in is essentially fake and worthless. And it's not just impacting then the people who are proclaiming that, it is impacting the many people who are being led by them. We're in the conclusion section of 2 Corinthians. If you're just jumping in with us, 2 Corinthians can be divided into three sections, chapters 1 to 7. Paul is reconciling with them. They've had a difficult time relating to Paul. They're being influenced actually by outsiders. Uh, we looked at chapters 8 and 9, which he kind of gets into some very important spiritually practical matters regarding money as he's collecting money to support the church in Jerusalem who's experiencing famine. And then we're in this last section where he turns his attention very much at those who are misleading his church, the so-called super apostles, as he ironically names them here. And he wants to correct their misunderstandings. And what he seeks to correct here is this temptation to be misled towards fake Jesuses, to trusting a false gospel, to being led by a different spirit. 
And that's my hope for you today, that you would grow in discernment if you're a follower of Jesus, to discern what is real and fake, because it's easy to point out the extreme cases of it, but the inauthentic gospels, the fake Jesuses are here in our midst, shaping our minds, shaping our behaviors. This is not just true of those who are followers of Jesus. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, maybe the thing that you're rejecting is actually not really the true Jesus. Maybe you've been presented an inauthentic gospel, and that's why you have such a great difficulty with it. And I invite you, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, to listen and investigate and to ask questions about what it means to truly believe in the historical Jesus, who really was a God-man, who really did die and rise from the dead. I pray that we would grow in discernment. I'm going to summarize this passage. It's got a lot going on in it, but really spend 90% of our time uh, in verse 4. Uh, so I'll get there, but let me just summarize this section. Uh, he's getting very personal in chapter 11. We're going to look at a lot of the personal things even next week uh, in verses uh, 16 onward. He's getting more personal because his care for them is increasing. He's deeply concerned that they're being misled by these so-called super apostles. And so he goes on kind of ironically, sarcastically, and foolishly boasting. That's something that goes on in the culture of Corinth that we have to grasp, that these, this culture was very much about strength and superficial appearances, and they often took much pride in their boasting about their credentials. It's about their LinkedIn profile. It's about their social media followers. It's, that's, they would love exactly what we have today because they would boast in their strength. And Paul doesn't want to relate to that because he wants to follow the ways of Jesus. And these so-called super apostles were using the Corinthian culture and boasting in themselves, turning the Corinthians against Paul because they would say, well, if Jesus is such a victorious, conquering Lord, a king who will return in victory, why is Paul so weak? Why is he suffering so much? That's maybe one of the reasons he's being attacked. You see this kind of personal concern in verses 1 to 2. I wish that you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. He brings about this betrothal image, which is a very common image to describe the people of God, Israel, and the Old Testament and their relationship to God. A betrothed couple uh, wouldn't live together uh, until the marriage ceremony, but the betrothal period would be taken very seriously. You couldn't get out of a betrothal unless you were issued a certificate of divorce. And if you cheated during that time, then it would be treated as adultery even prior to the ceremony. It's a very serious time. And the, because they didn't live together at that period of time, the father of the bride would be primarily responsible for safeguarding the daughter. And Paul is using this example to express that his concern for them is like a spiritual father for a daughter being presented to Christ as the bridegroom. He wants them to know he cares deeply about them. That's the same concern I, I, I hope that you sense from our leadership in our church. If we are to speak strongly or to seek correction, it's not because of our pride or not because we want our particular way. I pray that we would do so out of and you would sense from us a deep parental concern, a spiritual shepherd's concern. And so if you find me speaking strongly, that it would be done not because of just my personality, but because I see a deep concern 
He also wants them to see that there's something serious at stake. It is spiritual adultery that's at stake. Paul is not just against the apostles that are there because they're hurting his feelings. He says in other letters that, you know, as long as they preach the true gospel, even if they're against them, he doesn't care. This is not just his pride hurt. In fact, he doesn't really care much about himself. He cares because what they're proclaiming is misleading them. And they're threatening not just his authority, but threatening their authentic relationship with the Lord. He's concerned. And that's the same concern I, I have for us because fake Jesuses, false gospels, dangerous spirits are at work still today. One of the main reasons maybe they're, they're causing attention, he spends a lot of time talking about the fact that he doesn't receive financial support from them. Like, without getting into too much detail, that would hurt their pride because they're used to this culture where they support and they want their, their pastor to, to seem successful. That's what the Corinthian culture was about. And so the fact that Paul seems so weak still and he rejected their help, it, it strained their relationship. And the super apostles were using that against them because it was common in their culture. If you had a leader you loved, you would be the primary support, especially if you have the financial means that strained their relationship. I want to focus mainly, though, on verse 4. Look with me again. I want us to grow in discernment of what's real and fake. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. They're being misled. And he wants to speak strongly to correct this misleading because their lives, their spiritual life is at stake. It's not actually, though, something obvious to them. It was probably something categorically good to them. Paul says at the end of this section, and no wonder, for even Satan guises himself as an angel of light. Do you ever notice how our cartoonish or cultural ex like kind of expressions of Satan are very obvious. He comes with a pitchfork and horns and a red cape. But he never comes that way. He comes proclaiming, not saying, I'm going to give you a fake gospel. He doesn't have a sign flashing above his head. I'm the enemy. <laughs> no, he comes looking like he's from God. Giving us understanding that sounds kind of true. He doesn't give us something that seems obvious at first, and that's what the false teachers are being used by Satan and from their own selves are bringing something that sounds really good to their, to their ears, when in fact it's death. First, let's look at this temptation to see a, and trust a fake Jesus. We're looking at fake Jesus, uh, a dangerous spirit, and a different gospel. And let's look at a real and fake Jesus first. In our culture, you ever notice, many people are increasingly turning away from Christianity, from going to church, from trusting in institutional religion. And yet, many people in our culture, generally, if you ask them about Jesus, they still have a fondness for Jesus. You see athletes proclaiming Jesus. You see different media figures loving and claiming Jesus. It's common in our culture now, increasingly so, to hate on Christianity because it's viewed as being filled with a bunch of narrow-minded, bigoted people, but still love Jesus. How is that possible? To have a decrease 
of Christianity, but an increase or at least a stabilizing interest and appreciation for Jesus? I think I know the answer. It's because the temptation is to make Jesus who we want him to be. The reason you can downplay Christianity and still have a fondness for Jesus is because maybe the Jesus that we believe in or cling to, or maybe that one that is being proclaimed out there or presented out there is a remaking of Jesus in our image, not trusting in the Jesus of Scripture. There are many different Jesus out there today, and they're in the church. They're in our culture. There's a Republican Jesus, isn't there? And there's a Democrat Jesus. There's a woke Jesus and an anti-woke Jesus. There's a Jesus who loves the city and a Jesus who loves the middle of nowhere. There's a white Jesus. There's a black Jesus. There is a brown Jesus and there's an Asian Jesus. There's a rich Jesus and a poverty Jesus. There's even a vegan Jesus, a meat lover's Jesus, a Jesus is my homeboy Jesus, an open-minded Jesus who just wants you to live your truth because he's all about loving you exactly the way you are. Touchdown Jesus, who's just there to make athletes faster and recover quicker, like Purdy today, you're hoping, like later. Life coach Jesus, who just wants you to be the best version of yourself. I think the reason people in our culture generally still like Jesus is because I think the temptation, the tendency is not to let Scripture tell us who Jesus is and then evaluate him based upon how he proclaims himself to be, but are we reshape, we remake Jesus into our image. Which Jesus are you turning to? We're not entirely sure which Jesus the Corinthians were being misled by. It's possible that they were being misled by this triumphant Jesus because that was very much the culture of Corinth where there was victory and strength and appearances. And so that's the Jesus that the Corinthians potentially were being misled by. You see that even in our culture today. This is why you see this rise of like a nationalism, in ver not just in America and other places, because you want a militaristic, strong Jesus to help you win. Maybe it was the Judaizing Jesus, where they wanted, and this is a temptation you see in other Paul's letters, where the Christians were being misled to say, well, you need to follow all the Jewish ceremonial laws in order to then first follow Jesus and be faithful to Jesus. You need to become Jewish first. See, Paul attacking that fake Jesus in other places. He wants to wake them up. He wants them to pay attention to the temptation to follow a fake Jesus because there is only one Jesus that Jesus revealed to us in Scripture. He's not made in our image, but he bears the very image, the very fullness of God as the eternal one who always was and is and will always be. He took on flesh. He experienced all of humanity's brokenness and sin and yet remained sinless. He became fully man. He was a true prophet. He was a real priest and the true king. He is the Alpha of the Omega, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He is a good shepherd, a savior. There's only one real Jesus. He may be very different 
than what you ever anticipated him to be, but he is way better than we ever deserve. Full of grace, full of truth. He warns them in the latter part of this section, verse 12, and what I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, guising themselves as apostles of Christ. Hear this, church. Not every single person who proclaims to love Jesus actually follows the real Jesus. That continues to be the case today, not just in Paul's time. Jesus himself on the Sermon on the Mount gives this very sobering warning. He says in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Church, it's possible to do supernatural things in the name of Jesus, to experience conversion in the name of Jesus to see growth in the church in the name of Jesus and not actually follow the real Jesus. It's an important question. Are we following the true Jesus, the one that invites us to follow him? Come, die, take up your cross, follow me. Or maybe we've followed the American dream Jesus. What kind of Jesus are you following? There are many fake Jesuses and we want to grow in discernment. Spend some time on the spirit and then the fake or dangerous fake gospel. What's the difference between a real and fake spirit? Now, the text doesn't make clear. Uh, that's why you see in our versions, probably it's a lower case. Maybe it is the Holy Spirit that received a different Holy Spirit. Or maybe it's lowercase s because it's dealing with the spirits or the zeitgeist of the age. But... I think primarily, given the context, thinking about what's going on in Corinthians, I think it has to do with the, the spirit of the age, and it really primarily has to do with power. You notice all the examples of people who do not want Jesus but want the Holy Spirit in the New Testament? It's really about power. So you see Simon the Magician, they see all these amazing things happening with the apostles. What he wants is the Holy Spirit, not because he really wants it, but he wants power. He wants to be able to, he sees, well, his magic isn't as good as that magic, and what he wants is power. He wants control. He wants to tame it for himself. In our culture, the spirit of the age, we mentioned this a little bit last week, is the self, the sovereign self, to look inside for change and identity, look inside for strength in your life. I actually think, well, that is the, cultural spirit of this age. A lot of people today, as our culture continues to tell everyone, you just have to look inside, pull yourself up. You can find inner strength. I think a lot of people are honest. They've tried it and they realize that doesn't work. I don't have enough on the inside. You ever do a deep enough look on the inside or try deep enough and you realize I'm not enough. I like a lot of people are recognizing that. That's why one of the most strongest or fastest growing religious following today in our country is witchcraft because they're looking for something outside themselves. It comes in place in all different versions. You may think, well, it doesn't exist around us. Yes, it does. My old comic book shop 
closed because comic books weren't as popular anymore, sadly, and it turned into a psychic shop. And I'm like, how is that psychic shop still alive? Like, who's going there? Like, how is this? Is it a drug front? I don't know. How it, basically, how does this thing survive when a comic book shop can't? Because I think a lot of people are recognizing they don't have enough inside themselves and are looking outside themselves for something. Christians, remember, we have the Holy Spirit. I love this prayer in Ephesians. According to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. We don't just look inside ourselves, in and of ourselves, but we can now, because of the spirits dwelling in us, look inside because God has taken up life in us. And he goes on in verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. There are a lot of different spirits out there. You may not label it as trusting a particular spirit because we don't use religious language anymore in our culture. But you trust all kinds of spirits. But recognize there's a danger into that because as followers of Jesus, that is trusting the culture, that is trusting the ways to find power and strength to change and live life outside of the very power of life that God has gifted to us. The very power that breathed creation into existence lives in you if you are in Christ. And Paul's saying, I'm, I'm trying to guard you, presenting you to Christ to be faithful as a pure bride because don't trust these other power sources that the culture presents as giving you strength and power. You are the very breath of God in you. You have the very power of creation. You have the power of resurrection in you. That's why he wants to wake them up. And that's why he wants to, by his word, wake us up today. How many of us forget we have the very presence of God that living in us and we just turn to other spirits? The spirit of self-determination. The spirit of self-discipline. The spirit of trusting whatever place you are looking for strength, safety, and security. The spirit of financial security the spirit of entrusting your appearance. There are many spirits at play that we're tempted to trust for power, strength, and ability. The one way you can discover what spirit you may be tempted to trust in is think about the thing that you would lose in your life and you would feel pretty destroyed. If you lost that, it was taken from you and you would be destroyed. It's very likely you're trusting in that for strength, stable, stability, and security. But remember, no one can take Christ if you are in his hand. No one can take Christ from you. We spend most of our time looking at this fake versus real gospel. So there's a fake Jesus. There's a false spirit. There's also a different gospel out there. And gospel literally means good news. And I think we, we don't think about the good news in the context of what it was originally used in. And I think it's helpful to remind ourselves of the cultural context in the ancient Near East. 
Gospels were given in the context of cities at war. It's like an announcement. It's a heralding of good news. Uh, when a city went to war, uh, usually the, the fighting men would go away. And the people back home would be the children, the, the women, those who weren't able to fight. And they would be gone, sometimes weeks, months, sometimes even years. And the city, usually within walls, protected, would be awaiting in anticipation for news of what happened to its military. A messenger would come. And if their military was victorious, and they were the ones who came out strong and winning, they would send the messenger to, to give that message, and then they would look out for this messenger to come home, and they would await. If they were victorious, they would declare, good news, we won. It would cause the city to erupt in praise and thanksgiving. That's gospel, good news. It's an announcement of victory. In today's age, we don't have gospels regularly used in our culture. We don't talk about it as gospels, at least. And actually, even though we try to, in our culture, remove this as the good news, there's not a void of it. We just create new gospels. This is because everyone, deep down, because we're made in the image of God, knows something's wrong with the world. You may have a different explanation for what's wrong with the world, but you have some answer to what's wrong in the world, and you cling to that as victory. Everyone knows the world is not the way it's supposed to be, and that's what causes a proliferation of different gospels. How you get identity, community, salvation. Paul wants them to be aware there are fake gospels that would tempt you to trust in them rather than trusting in the declaration of Jesus and his work on the cross. This has been a problem since the very beginning of creation. Paul alludes to this in verse 3, but I am afraid that the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The serpent comes, causing doubt, twisting the words of God, twisting good news from God. It causes Adam and Eve to distrust the good news of God. What I want to do is look at some fake gospels today in, in this little bit of time we have on this. And the, some come from the culture. Some are inside the church. There are fake gospels that are vying for your trust, that are leading you astray. When you still profess Jesus and trust in this gospel, you may say the name of Jesus, but you actually do not know Jesus. Trevor Wax wrote a book a number of years ago called Counterfeit Gospels. If you want to dig deeper into the fake gospels that exist in our culture today, I encourage you to read that. It's called Counterfeit Gospels. Some of the labels I'll use are actually taken from him. I'm not going to go over all the different ones. I'm going to spend some time on three of them. There is a moralist gospel. There is definitely a moralist gospel that exists in many of our churches. This gospel says the message of Christianity, the message of Jesus, is to be a good person. Because God is good. So you need to be good too. In fact, all these gospels, notice, there's always truth to them. Because if it was very obviously not good news, you wouldn't trust it. There's always some bit of truth though. And it's twisting it or displacing Jesus at the center. God is good in this gospel, this moralist gospel. He gives us rules. 
And so if you keep the rules, life will go well for you. It's essentially what I believe the friends of Job had, a moralist gospel, which is why they couldn't imagine that if Job was faithful to God that he would experience suffering in his life. You can imagine why so many people, when they experience suffering in their life, they immediately turn from God because maybe they don't trust the gospel, they trust a moralist gospel. I've been good, God, now you owe me. The emphasis is not on Jesus in the moralist gospel. It's not on what he's done, it's what you do to be good. And when you're good, this is what end up, this is how you know someone trusts in a moralist gospel. They're very condescending. They're very prideful. They look down on all the bad people out there. This is a great temptation among a lot of conservative Christians because they often look at how they're not doing certain sins and saying, well, look at all those sinners out there. This changes the good news of Jesus into just good advice on how to live. This is the essence of empty religiosity. This type of religion is void of God. This is the kind of thing that Jesus confronted in the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leadership of the time. The moralist gospel, sometimes, this is why it's dangerous, it starts with good news, it starts with a glimmer of grace, but really it's just about you and your ability to obey law. It's a new chance to work really hard. You, you see this running rampant in churches that focus entirely on behavior modification. In fact, th- th- when I was thinking about this, I started to evaluate, maybe what I do in my family with my children is actually presenting them not the gospel of Jesus, but actually a moralist gospel. Because if all I focus on is behavior modification, I'm not giving them anything about Jesus. I'm giving them, you are good if you do these good things and don't do these bad things. Maybe that's why we presented a generation of kids who don't know Jesus. It's focused on not who we worship, but what we do. I think, honestly, this is one of the major contributing factors in our culture why children and youth leave Christianity because maybe they never met Jesus. They just met law. And it sounds like Jesus because we use the name of Jesus, but all we're doing is actually giving them, you do these things, don't do these things, and then you'll be right in our family, you'll be right in the church. I remember experiencing this once when I was the youth pastor and I had a parent get really agitated and angry with me because I wasn't insisting that the children bring their physical Bibles anymore. And that was their thing, that you need to get the kids to bring the Bible. I'm like, I'm not against kids reading the Bible. I would love for them to bring the Bible, but that insistence and that, if they thought their Bible, that would, make, that would give the indication that things are fine in the youth group. That's a moralist gospel. It's, see, that's why it's dangerous. Not a bad thing. I want that. I would love our kids to bring their Bibles, but if that's what I aim for and that's what I push and that's what I want our kids to align themselves to, what they're aligning to is law, not Jesus. It exists. This gospel, do you see this gospel in our church? You see this gospel in our children's ministry, in Camp Tunes, in our youth ministry? It exists. Sadly, sometimes blindness from our own pastors, we perpetuate a moralist gospel. A moralist gospel takes the eyes off of Jesus, puts it on law. It kills grace. Church, we need to be careful of a moralist gospel. The second gospel that's fake that exists in our culture, in our churches today, is an activist gospel. An activist gospel. This gospel says that the kingdom of God is advanced through our efforts to bring justice into society in the world. This gospel's power reduces 
is reduced to like cultural transformation. And the, the church is just called to unite itself to political causes and making the world a better place. This isn't to say that the gospel doesn't compel Christians to engage in politics and culture in transformational ways. It does. But the problem is now the gospel about Jesus is equated to cultural transformation. You see the activist gospel in our culture. In fact, I think this is the civil religion of America, is activism. You see this in our church, where there's an emphasis sometimes on engaging in our culture in ways that take our eyes off of Jesus. American culture has been long trying to distance itself from religion, the, the separation of church and state. But as people, we're whole people physical, emotional, spiritual people. We reject religion in labels and categories, but we end up just creating another one because people need something outside themselves to relate to. And I think America, the, the number one American civil religion today is activism, a justice gospel. I was reading a book by Tara Burton that helped me kind of articulate this, unpack this. It's called Strange Rights. And she sees a secular version of social justice as America's religion today. She says this, Modern social justice culture has managed to create a thoroughly compelling eschatological focused account of a meaningful world in which every human being has a fundamental purpose in a cosmic struggle, all without including, well, God. An activist gospel locates the sin of the world, the problem of the world, in society and its systems and its solution, its gospel is to liberate people from those oppressive systems, to dismantle systems of the past. Its clear enemy is sometimes Christians who are against them or anyone who doesn't really fit into their agenda. Now, there's a Christianized version of this that exists in our churches, not just a secular social gospel, but there's actually a Christian social gospel that defines and redefines the gospel, not on what God has done for us, but on our ability to be involved in the culture. And it's confusing, actually. This is why it sounds so good, because the Bible is full of a call for the church to care for the needy and the poor, to do good deeds, and that is true. There's a strong sense of purpose in the false social gospel. A high view of human ability towards building a utopia. And we've been doing this since the beginning of time. You see this ultimately exampled in the, the type of Babel building we do. But all of that's without God. Because the power doesn't come from God. It's not compelled by a love of God. It comes from within. It's a pursuit of justice without God. And actually, that much makes it very confusing in our culture. Who gets to define what real justice is? The people in power? Well, then it's an endless cycle because those people abuse and oppress. It's a moving target. That's why everything in our culture, in a, in a social gospel religion in our culture, feels like a power play. You can see this playing out just yesterday in our, in our time today with the movements around Palestine and Israel and all these efforts to claim justice on every side and many of them done without any reference to God. So who gets to define what justice is then? This activist gospel explains a lot going on in the religious activity of our country. But at the end of the day, it's not a good gospel. If you boil down a, a fundamental trust to the solution being our involvement in the world, then it's all obligation and no grace. It's all burden. 
In fact, if you trust a social gospel in our culture, whether it's in the culture or in our churches, it's all about deconstruction. There's no rebuilding, no construction. Or it places the reconstruction on the church where we are not responsible for that. All of it's just judgment in this gospel. And so you see people expose people. You dox people. Yes, it happened recently. You cancel people. You, there's no healing or forgiveness in a social justice gospel. In the church version of the social justice gospel, doing justice becomes the gospel itself. It removes the attention and emphasis on what the real problem is, which is our sin and rebellion against God. Now, let me be careful. There's a lot of nuance what I'm saying here. I do believe we should be involved socially, politically, culturally. That is an implication of what the gospel pushes us to do, but that itself is not the gospel. We live in response to the gospel, but we don't live a gospel. We don't do that gospel. We respond to it in our lives. And I think that's what confuses us sometimes. We, we stop then heralding Jesus. We start heralding how much the church can do. That's why people say stuff like the church is the only hope for the world. I'm like, I get why they're saying that because in many ways it is true because Jesus wants to build his church. He works through the church. But when you just kind of take that down a second, you can mislead people to think that the church or what the church does, now that's good news. We try and build a kingdom without its king. And that happens in our churches. There's a activist gospel in our culture and sometimes misleading us in our churches. Last, there's a prosperity gospel. This proclaims that if you have enough faith, you will be healthy and wealthy. If you have enough faith, things in your life will go well. And this so-called gospel confuses the favor of God with material blessing and worldly success. It elevates stuff over God. And God just becomes part of the equations to get what you want. Really, he's no longer the person you worship. You use God to get what you want. And that's not good news, as Jesus presents good news. Because it invites us to treat God as a genie, and our joy becomes dependent on our circumstances. Now, in our church, if you've been in our church for a while, you would hopefully know that the prosperity gospel is very far from our explicit theology and our teaching. And it's very easy to see that our church really isn't overtly misled by the prosperity gospel. And so maybe I'm bringing this up, and I was even bringing this up, I was like, should I even bring this up? Is it really an issue in our church? It's not in those surfacey ways. I mean, I don't have, I'm not asking you to give money to our church for me to buy a jet. So I don't have that kind of prosperity gospel going on, right? But maybe there are prosperity gospel threads in our church. I, I want us to look deeper. In fact, I think the prosperity gospel is rampant in our church, even though I'm not asking you to give money to, for me to buy a jet. One of the ways you can tell is listen to the prayers for our mission teams. What are we praying for? Safety. That's always the first thing. Is safety the number one concern of mission? Look at the scriptures. Is it? And it's not that I want people to be unsafe. I want people to be safe. I don't want hard, bad things to happen, but isn't that the risk of mission, isn't it, from the very beginning? It's always a risk. It's always life. And so maybe our prayers indicate 
that we have such a love of safety that we can only do things for God if it guarantees that we're going to be a safe, that we do have a health gospel at play. But think about how you pray for your children. What are our prayers for our children? I'm going to generalize here. I think many of us who grow up in immigrant cultures, whether they're immigrants from Europe or South America or from Asia, we, we have this kind of prayer for our children. We came to give our kids a better life. So we just pray for them to do better than us, to have better educational opportunities, to make more money than us so they can take care of us when we're old. We pray that kind of prayer, right? We, we pray those kinds of prayers. We pray for them to have, you know, we pray for them when they're young to, you know, go to a good school so they can go to a good college, get a good job, marry a good spouse and make a lot of money. We, we pray those kinds of prayers overtly or kind of quietly. Those are our prayers. And that's a prosperity prayer. Maybe the threat of the prosperity gospel exists in our church more than we realized. We pray those kinds of prayers. Have you dissected your culture? And I think culture meaning many of us come from different places. Maybe your culture is from your heritage, like Abe coming from a, a you know, Korean family who, who's also got you know, stuff to unpack there because your dad was also a pastor, which is why you didn't want to be an elder for a very long time, right? So you have to think there's cultural elements from our living in America. There's our countries of origin, our nationalities, our media families. So those of us in our church who grew up, I, and it took me a while to kind of see this because I didn't really celebrate this as a kid. Um, I didn't celebrate Chinese New Year because my parents didn't really care too much and there wasn't a lot of people where we grew up to celebrate Chinese New Year's with. Um, but you realize as I started to unpack a little bit how much of Chinese New Year and culture is steeped in prosperity gospel? It is. The entire thing. If you say gong shi fatsai, that literally means asking for prosperity and wealth. Literally. And it's not to say that you can't say those phrases and encourage cultural expressions and coming from who we are, but have you done the work to see how things embedded in what made you who you are, actually maybe there's more of a prosperity there, embedding that, than you realize. Is it possible we've baptized cultural values from our background into Christianity and said, this is Christian? I think so. There are lots of fake gospels out there. And I'm taking a long time to preach now, I realized. I got lost in time. So sorry, worship team. We're still going to finish, but let me just end with the real gospel. I got so into the fake ones, I want to make sure I give you the real one, <laughs> which I already mentioned, but you know what, what's at that fundamental problem of all these fake gospels, they just give you good advice. That's what all of these gospels are. What you should do, what you shouldn't do, and it all becomes fundamentally reliant on you. The good news of Jesus is not fundamentally a message of what you should do. It's what's been done for you in Jesus. It's not good advice on how to get your life back together and make yourself right with God. It's good news of God in his grace. Even when we are his enemies, even when we rejected him, we run from him, he sends his son for us. It's good news. That also brings out the bad news, that our bad news is that we have rejected God. We've committed spiritual adultery. See, the false gospel is the problems are always outside yourself. The true gospel gets at what really is the problem. But despite that, despite the darkness and rejection and sin, God still sends his son for us. 
And the whole story of this gospel culminates in Jesus, a king who lived a perfect life, merciful, kind. He gave his life for us. It wasn't taken from him. He gave it to us on the cross to die for not his sin, but our sin in our place as a substitute. Not just generic sin. Your every sin that you know, every sin that you didn't even know that you committed, all the sins that you will do that you don't even know about yet. If you're in Christ, he has covered it all. Not based upon what you've done. And then he rose from the grave conquering death he came back he gave us new life in him and he's coming back again to build his kingdom and he did all this because he's love not because we're so lovable not because we did something to deserve it but because he's a kind loving gracious king and this gospel then transforms everything this is what compels us to live morally. We don't trust our behavior, but because we've been so loved by God, we want to live in light of God. This, this transforms our social engagement, our activism. It's not that that in and of itself is what we trust, but, but Jesus' love compels us to love. And then it gives us a true vision of prosperity. God may bless here on this earth, but we have an inheritance that will never fade never be taken away. And so it can cause us to live recklessly with our time and our money for the sake of Jesus. Radically. That's the good news. He does all this by his grace, overcoming your sin, transforming us from the inside out. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I invite you to ask that question that I asked at the very beginning. When you think about Jesus or church or Christianity, which Jesus were you presented? Was it this one? And maybe you weren't quite presented this one or you have some version of it are you willing to engage in conversation and wrestle and admit that maybe the jesus you have is being twisted because of cultural representations or what you saw in the news or just a bad experience with someone and i pray that you would investigate and dive deeper or maybe if you're a follower of jesus you're experiencing a lackluster and maybe lukewarm relationship with Jesus or a distant one. Maybe it's time to audit whether or not we've been misled or tempted to follow a false Jesus, a fake spirit or a false gospel. Let's pray. Father, infuse us with truth. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And so we ask, for your spirit to cause us to see what's real, to discern what is real, to be humble in spirit so that we would hold our lives, hold our thoughts open before you so that we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds that are being reshaped by your word and your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that our church would be pure, as we turn to you, that the words from Paul proclaimed thousands of years ago today would cause us to grow in discernment and return to our faithfulness to you. I pray that you would grow us in Christ, the real Christ, and that it would spill over into our lives for your name and glory. In Christ's name, amen.